0: I have a couple things to share this morning. A couple passages of scripture that really stood out to me as I was reading here in the past week or so. Um, So we'll just go ahead and start with the first one I have. Uh, It's from the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 4. I'm not sure if anybody shared this in your groups, but uh, what it says is Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And so you may recall, if you've been here, we have also sort of offered the model of soap for reading the scripture. And the S stands for scripture, the O stands for observation, the A is for application, and the P is for prayer. And that's a model you can take to just read through scripture each day as you're doing it. So, my observation from this scripture is that God wants us to be connected. He says, In abundance of counselors, there is safety. God wants good for us. God wants safety for us. And he says, where is that found? There's, it's found in an abundance of counselors. So God wants us to be a, connected. And so application I have from that is, yeah, yeah, I should seek and listen to counsel from others as I make decisions. I think even to that song we sang this morning, I surrender all. I surrender all, and that's really counter, isn't it? In a lot of ways, the way our culture says we should be, and as as Americans, we, we sometimes think we should be. We should be independent. I should be independent. I should be independent. But that's not what this verse says. It's not what this verse says. It doesn't say, do it your way. God's Word tells us we are to be submitted. We are to seek an abundance of counselors. And I think there's a parallel here. The Bible talks at length about authority. In a culture where there tends to be an increasing rejection of authority, the Bible, I think, is pretty clear. Here's some here's some uh, examples of the authorities God has set up for us. Uh, one of them is the Scripture. Some of you are familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful... For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Another authority God has set up for us is the government. In Romans 13, 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God tells us that our spiritual leaders are our authorities. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Another authority, if you're a child, another authority is your parents. The Bible says, Children, obey your parents in all things. For this pleases the Lord. That's in Ephesians 6, verse 1. And there's more of these, but this is just a sample of the authorities the Bible has set up in our lives. Now, the parallel here, we're talking about counselors, not about authorities today. But God doesn't want us to be independent operators. He sets up authorities for us and says, these authorities are to help guide you. And in the same way, He says, I want to speak to you through other people, through counsel. I think that's what this verse is telling us. So we can ask this question: What kind of decision should I take to counselors? Now, I, I don't necessarily mean the kind of professional counselor who helps you with emotional needs. That's a great way to get counseling. <coughs> but what we're talking about is yeah, getting guidance for moving forward. What kind of counsel? What kind of decision should I take to counselors? And I, I thought of a few. I, I got them on the screen here. Our jobs, our, our living situations, our housing situations, our relationships, our marriage, our finances, and so on and so forth. You could think of a lot of things. Now, I, I, I'm not suggesting that we take mundane decisions and go seek counsel. You don't need to be at the grocery store and say, hmm, should I buy Tangelo's or Valencia oranges, right? And I better call somebody and find out which one I should. No, that's kind of a mundane decision. We don't need to burden counselors, but I think we get the the gist of it here. Um, Sometimes this can be taken too far on the part of counselors, right? I have a friend who um, was at at one time kind of got involved with a, a cult group And in this cult group, uh, their leader instructed them and said, when you're getting ready in the morning, lay out a couple options of outfits on the bed, and then let's have a Skype call, and you you can show me what your options are, and I'll tell you what you should wear that day. Right? That's not what this is talking about. Right? That's taking things too far. That's not the kind of decision you should take to a counselor, necessarily. These are the kind of things, these big life decisions. So who should these counselors be? I think that's another legitimate question. An abundance of counselors. Well, who should the counselors be? Who should they be? Well, I think there's really two two things we can look at here. One would be wise people. When we talk about the wise, we're talking about people who are especially knowledgeable in a certain area. Right? So let's think about wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, that's kind of a loaded word. We could probably do a whole message on wisdom but just briefly we could think about wisdom and understanding and knowledge as different things and you kind of start with knowledge and knowledge is really just bits of information right as you're gaining knowledge you're gaining bits of information and understanding as i understand it is really to take knowledge and start making connections between those bits of information but then wisdom is being able to take that understanding and that knowledge and apply it in a new way to something that's different than what you had before. So we should be looking for people who are able to help us. Ah, someone who's maybe wise in an area. They're able to take the information that's there and help come up with kind of a, a synthesis of, of what can go forward, right? What be some things to think about there? Now, I think about individuals or groups with a special knowledge on a topic. For example... I mentioned there a job, right? You're saying I'm facing a situation with I'm looking for a job or I found a job or I've been offered a job. Well, probably talking to somebody who maybe has similar experience. Maybe it's somebody that's in in that field or maybe somebody who's walked through a transition in their job recently, right? Or we're talking about housing. You're going to go buy a house. A number of us have been in that situation here or are in that situation now. And you're going to go buy a house. Well, a realtor is probably a pretty wise person who could help you walk through that. But you could also talk to other people who have maybe walked through that process and they could say, hey, watch out for this or, or do that other thing, right? Marriage. If you want to get married, you're thinking about married. Probably you singles You'd be the ones who'd be thinking about that. Well, should you talk to other single people about what's marriage like? Well, they may not be the wisest counsel when it comes to that. Not that they don't have anything to offer, but probably should talk to married people about that. Or your finances. Oh, when you talk about a financial decision or things going on in our finances, you should probably talk to somebody who knows something about finances, whether that's someone who's a professional financial counselor and they have a place and an opportunity, but maybe other people who've managed their finances well and you see real fruit in their life second group of counselors you see on the screen here are spiritual leaders (coughs) spiritual leaders really, you know, for whatever reason God has really designed it so that spiritual leaders have experience in a broad variety of things. That's how people kind of rise into becoming spiritual leaders as they, they have some experience in things. And um, I tell people this often as people meet with me and I go, you know, I haven't, I really don't try to set myself up as a spiritual leader but uh, this is just, God has asked me to step into this role as a pastor and, and here I am. And I know Brad feels the same way and at some point God wants us to bring to bear wisdom on the intersection of the practical and the spiritual and that's kind of what we're here to really help you guys with and help you with an understanding of that and there's others it's not just Brad and I you have uh, gospel group leaders you have uh, someone maybe who is discipling you or speaking into your life who is a spiritual leader who can really help you with those things and so I think sometimes as we think about seeking counsel and what does it look like sometimes we need to ask the question what does seeking counsel not sound like Right, and over the years I've seen a number of people and even myself included who have not really sought counsel in the right way and so i got three examples of maybe how not to seek counsel one would be to say something basically of here's what I'm doing, will you approve of it? at some point if you have already laid out your plans and you're walking down the path and you're just trying to get someone to approve of it you're not really seeking counsel you're just trying to seek approval because counsel is before you get to that saying before I make this decision can you help me make this decision? And really being open to that. If you're just looking for someone to check a box so you can kind of say, oh yeah, I sought counsel to do what I wanted to do, you're not really seeking counsel. Another option is when you say, what not to do is say, I asked only people who I knew would agree with me. I think there's a mark of maturity in saying, I'm not sure that person is going to agree and I'm going to go ask them and see what they have to say in humility. Right? If you're just looking for yes men, there's no, really no point in seeking counsel. A third option here, a third way that we should not be seeking counsel is asking only people who don't know Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking people who don't know Jesus. They have things to offer as well. But if we're talking about the intersection of the spiritual and the practical, if you take someone who doesn't know Jesus, they're not really going to be able to help you with that. And there may be some spiritual aspect with the decision that you're facing that you're just missing. But if you don't ask anybody who's in tune with that, you're not really going to get any help. So I guess as I wrap up this little bit here about Proverbs 11, I just wanted to throw this question out to any of you to ponder. I know a number of you are great at doing this, but it's something to ponder. Are you seeking wise counsel when you're making decisions? Are you seeking wise counsel when you're making decisions? You might ask that. And again, sort of on behalf of Brad and I, we're, we're glad to help you and be a counselor, just however we can help. We'd like to do that. And I know a number of you, your, your gospel group leader, other leaders in the church, would be happy to help you with that as well. All right, so we'll move on to my second passage. The second thought from the Bible I read is, is this passage. I don't know how many of you have been reading in Mark. If you're in the one-year Bible, you've been reading in Mark. In chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, there's these sudden two sentences. He says, and a young man followed him. Write, now this is right after um, Jesus is arrested in the garden. A young man followed him, so him is Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they, they being the the bad guys, right, the chief priests and their sort of mob of people, they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Right? And my observation is, this is a funny story. (laughs) Anyone else think it's funny? It's okay, we can laugh at the Bible, right? It's kind of funny. Right? What... Can you imagine this? Like, oh, and I'm so eager to get away. You go. What is going on? What is the deal with this story? But scripture is not pointless. So there is a purpose to this story. There is a purpose. There must be a purpose. And so, what is it? So we got to got to think more deeply. And we know that Mark, the author, is very, very deliberate. He's very deliberate in his writing. And so he includes this anecdote here, and there's a reason. I know there's a reason for it, and I'm going to present to you here kind of my thought on maybe what that is, right? I think there's some questions we can ask. We can ask the question, who was this young man? Right? There's not a name. So who was this guy? What was he doing? And why did he have nothing but a single piece of of clothing? Seems like another good question to ask. And then finally, what is significant about this story what is so significant about him having a scuffle and losing his clothes and now I would again sort of preface this by saying I I don't know if we can necessarily say definitively this is exactly what happened I'm going to give you some ideas of what, what I think is going on here and hopefully that blesses you so first we ask the question who was this quote unquote young man a young man followed him now there's a lot of different ideas about this in time, if you go out and do a little research on this, some people say, no, this was Mark. This was Mark, the author. This happened to him. He just didn't want to sort of name himself. But then it just kind of seems like a silly anecdote. So I'm not sure that's necessarily true. We don't know for sure. Some people have said, hey, this is the owner of the garden. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the owner of the garden comes out, and you know he was awakened, and he, he comes out wearing just this clothing. Well, what would be the point of that? I don't know. Maybe that's an option. Some people have said, you know, earlier, in Mark, we see a a rich man come up to Jesus and say, what must I do? And Jesus says, sell everything you have. And they go, oh, maybe that's the same guy. And here he is, and he's sold everything, and he's down to just the linen cloth that he's wearing. Well, that could be true. There's a possibility. And I think a lot of times if you have a Bible that's got headings, you go back to that passage about the, the rich man, and they say, a rich young man. And that makes that connection. But if you look at the text, it just says a man. It doesn't say young man. So there's not necessarily that connection. So I don't know if that's going on. Maybe it is. But let's just look at the text. What does the text say? What does the text say about the young man? The young man did what? Followed Jesus. It followed him. It followed Jesus. And so what this means, one thing we can conclude is that young man was a disciple of Jesus. Disciple means one who follows. So this guy was a disciple of Jesus. Okay, so why did he have nothing but a single piece of clothing? What's the significance of that? Like I said, some suggest he was maybe roused from bed for what was going on there in the garden, and that's why he just he hadn't dressed for the, day, for the night or the day or whatever. Maybe that's going on, I don't know. Maybe it's not super important what else does mark tell us about having nothing let's look back at the text what does it say and here's this verse in mark chapter 10 and this is actually right after that rich man asked jesus what should we do and jesus says sell everything and follow me and peter began to say to him see we've left everything and followed you and then jesus said to him no you haven't that's not what jesus said right Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And what I love about this passage is that Jesus affirms what Peter said. He didn't say, No, 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 He didn't leave everything. He's like, No, yeah, you, you, you did leave everything. And so there's this implication from this passage that a disciple of Christ as Mark describes it, is one who has left everything to follow Jesus. Just like the song this morning we sang, I surrender all. That's, that's a mark of a disciple. Someone who has surrendered all, who has left all. And Mark, is, I really think, is drawing that out. Why is the young man in our passage down to his linen cloth? Because he's left all to follow Christ. And Mark is painting that picture for us. So if we know that, we can then ask the question, what is so important? What is so significant about this event of like losing his clothes and this sort of scuffle around the arrest of Christ? And what I'm going to propose to you is I think that Mark is painting four different pictures, four different pictures of discipleship using this. And so we're going to walk through these. First, there is a picture of how the disciples treated Christ. As we said, to be a disciple is to leave everything. And this young man is a disciple. He followed him and, hey, that bears out to be true. He left everything except the clothes on his body. But then comes this crucial moment in the story. Jesus is arrested and what do the disciples do? They take off and they scatter and they flee. And here is an example of a disciple who had left everything to follow Christ and now truly leaves everything to get away from him. And I think there's a picture for us of how, how the disciples treated Christ and how sometimes we treat Christ. Oh, that's not popular. I'm going to do everything I can to get away from him. there's another thing going on here. There's the term linen. You see that? Nothing but a linen cloth. He left the linen cloth. And there's only one other place in Mark where he uses the word linen. And as you see on the screen, it's there in Mark 15, verse 46. And this is after Jesus' death. Jesus has died on the cross and they brought his body down. And Joseph... Leader, this Jewish leader who says, I'm gonna put him in the tomb, right? He he brings him down, he, he bought a linen shroud, and take him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And so we can begin to connect the dots here that I think Mark maybe was was wanting us to do. There's a picture here, there's a young man, and he's wearing this linen cloth and he leaves it behind to get away from Jesus. It's like a, It like represents a garment of failure. A garment of sin. And Jesus goes on the cross and dies for that sin. And then we see him in the tomb and he's laid in, in a similar kind of garment. He takes that sin upon him. The garment gets taken off of the young man. Now, is it the same garment? I don't think so. But it's that same idea. Mark is drawing a picture for us. It's a picture of Christ taking our failure upon him in his death. I think that's pretty neat. Now think about the term in this verse, young man. How he qualifies it. What kind of man? A young man. Well, again, we only see the term young man one other place in the book of Mark. And it's at the end. In Mark chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, the women come to the tomb. And they find the stone rolled away. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, is this the same young man? Well, when we look at the other Gospels, we see that there's really an angel. But for whatever reason, Mark doesn't describe him as an angel. He describes him as a... Young man, and I think he's painting a picture for us again. I think we're seeing Christ's redemption. We see a young man in our first verse in Mark 14 a young man fails, he sins, he fails, and in the same way we fail. And then Jesus dies. Jesus pays the penalty for the young man's sin, he pays the penalty for our sin. And then he rises again. He comes to life. We see it here. The tomb is empty. And here we see a young man who is washed, who is redeemed, who is wearing a clean garment. And we, in the same way, when we make Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior, we too, in some ways, we we talked about it this morning and even as we sang about it in one of our songs, we were like crimson and now we're white like snow Jesus has washed us in his blood and so i think there's that picture but let's also think about the term white we see the verse the term white there in mark 16 and there's only one other place in mark where he uses the term white and i think i have it here in mark chapter 9 and this is the transfiguration of christ after six days Jesus took him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Interesting, he only uses white one other time and he refers to garments. So no one on earth could bleach them. In this case, white is an adjective that describes Jesus' glory. And so I think the third picture that's painted for us here is that Christ, in His glory, in His death, and His resurrection, He gives us the opportunity to share in His glory and His purity. So he's saying this morning we can be just terrible and dirty and crimson and gross from our sin, and yet Christ has died and paid the penalty. And it's like we get washed and we get to put on this garment of holiness, of purity so white that no one on earth could bleach it that way. And so I think there's a picture for us here. And then the final picture is really, what does this young man do? The the young man at the end, now that we've connected the dots, and it's probably not the same young man, but the idea of a young man at the end, and he's there, and he's in white clothes. Mark chapter 16, verses 6 to 7. This young man says to the women, he says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so in this case, what is this young man He is a proclaimer of the good news. And so there is a final picture here that we as redeemed sinners get to be the ones who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I hope you can see in those pictures that this is how we treat Christ. That you can see that Christ has taken His failure, our failure upon Him by His death, and then by His resurrection and by our receiving of the free gift of salvation, we get to share in His glory and in His purity. And then as a result, we as redeemed sinners get to go out and tell others about that. And so when we look back at this passage, we go, yeah, that's a funny story. There's one option of what I think really the purpose of that funny little anecdote really is, is that it connects the dots in Mark and helps us see a picture of what Christ has done for us. That's all I have for you this morning. Let's pray to close. God, I thank you for the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. God, as I think back even to this story of the young man, Lord, I very easily put myself in his shoes and say yeah I'm I run out of my clothes to get away from the danger yeah Lord I can say I'll leave everything I surrender all to follow you and yet I know that in my own strength when push comes to shove I'll leave all to get away and yet in the midst of that Jesus Christ died for my sin And I thank you that by doing that, Lord, your son took on my sin, my filthiness, my failure, my rebellion, my betrayal. And he died for it. And he paid the penalty that was due so that justice was satisfied. And Lord, his Jesus' holiness and purity comes on me like a white garment that I don't deserve. Lord, help me, help me to walk in the, the holiness and the cleanness that is there in Jesus Christ and help me to tell others. Help me to tell others the good news of the amazing things Jesus has done for me. Lord, as a church, we just want to be walking in that. We want to walk in the reality of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I thank you for this picture that you've given us in the Scripture. Help us to walk in it. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to counsel one another, Lord. Lord, we know that coming together and bringing our decisions and our lives to each other is going to bring us success, as it says in Proverbs. Help us in that. We thank you, God, for the wonder and the power of the Bible. Help us to thirst for it each day. And again, help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.